0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only master classes on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human.
1: Dr. Homer Tien is a trauma surgeon at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. We were so excited to have him on the show because of the incredible work he has done in multiple leadership roles, most recently as the President and CEO of Orange, Ontario's Air Ambulance and Transport Service. Largely because of the amazing work he had done with Orange, Dr. Tian was also made in charge of the COVID-19 Vaccine Distribution Task Force back in April of 2021. This was a conversation about trauma care, paramedic services, and air ambulances. But even more importantly, we got to hear Dr. Tien's insights on leadership.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you did your training? Sure. Uh, I uh, originally grew up in Hamilton till uh, Hamilton, Ontario, uh, and then moved to Toronto uh, for high school. But uh, so did all my schooling uh, in Toronto for general surgery and uh, yeah, I did my did general did medical school at McMaster did uh, general surgery um, in Toronto and did my fellowship in trauma in Toronto as well. What
1: um, motivated you to go on do trauma surgery?
2: You know, it's interesting. I actually was relatively undifferentiated uh, up till uh, my senior year in in, um, in general surgery residency. But uh, what happened was a couple of things. I, I was on my trauma rotation at uh, Sunnybrook and was really enjoying it, and then uh, I was there during uh, 9-11, and because I was funded by the military at the time, uh, I remember thinking, hmm, I'm going to be, uh, with 9-11, I'm sure that uh, we will be going to war, and I thought, tra- I'm enjoying trauma, I think trauma would be a good thing to be doing as a, uh, as a subspecialty.
0: Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. You know, as you bring up, Homer, you've been involved with the Canadian Armed Forces for a very long time. We're curious what what took you into that uh, sort of pathway initially. And, and uh, you know, I certainly know that a lot of the stuff that you've done over the years, you can't particularly talk about. But what has that experience overall contributed to how you practice surgery and how you think about injured patients?
2: You know, the uh, I, I like to say that probably... Uh, joining the military was the best decision of my life uh, professionally, and uh, you know the reasons for it were as mundane as, a, as the fact that uh, I needed uh, I needed to subsidize my medical training, and so I needed a, a way to pay for medical school. But uh, what happened was uh, originally we only had three years of obligatory service. I did my time uh, as a general practitioner uh, in the military as required and and really had an amazing time met some amazing people and uh, really learned a lot by watching others about leadership and uh, and you know Canada's place in the world and some of the things that we could contribute so I ended up staying in and it, it really gives you a way of I guess uh, leading both you know as surgeons we're leaders in the operating room at the hospital, and it just uh, the military gives a different perspective on how uh, we should be leaders.
0: Yeah, I can I can only imagine what some of those experiences, uh, you know, were like based on talking to you and and certainly knowing some of your colleagues. Are you still involved in the military now? And and uh, and if so, um, uh, what does that look like for you?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite the evolution. So I did spend um, five years as a general practitioner. And uh, in, those, in those years, I deployed quite a bit. I was with the uh, 1st uh, Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment and then uh, uh, Canadian Special Operations uh, with Joint Task Force 2 and spent a fair bit of time in the former Yugoslavia and elsewhere. And then as a surgeon, uh, we, I deployed uh, numerous times to Afghanistan to Kandahar. Um, in those roles, I was able to work as uh, sort of what we call the national practice leader for trauma, and so it was sort of I, I, my job was to give advice and help develop the trauma system for the Canadian Forces during our time in Afghanistan. Really uh, looking, planning the system from point of injury uh, in Afghanistan back to repatriation to Canada. I retired from the regular force in in let me think now uh, 2015. Uh, but I stayed on as a reservist, as the uh, chief of uh, chief of reserve medical and surgical specialist, and still um, I do some work uh, with the forces in that capacity.
0: Wow, that's that's really really neat. And the you know the, the whole GTF lore, I think, from a civilian point of view, is always interesting to to think about and realize that we have some pretty incredibly special folks helping look after us like, like you and your, your, uh, your former GTF colleagues. So we all thank you for that. I, I'm curious, uh, you know, on this particular uh, pathway of discussion, m- my last question would be uh, something to the effect of what, what are some of the most uh, challenging uh, areas that you see in integrating military and civilian care, particularly, I guess, injury care? Um, h- how does that, that sort of color or, or temper um, what you do in in your current and, and previous roles, uh, both with the air ambulance system and, and as being the boss at Sunnybrook.
2: Ooh, that's a that's a hard that's a, <laughs> a lot of components to that question. I guess what I what I'd say to that is uh, I think they're 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 interrelated. So when we first uh, in the military went to Afghanistan, we had a lot to learn from the military, which was that. Uh, Canadian Armed Forces hadn't really been in a shooting war since since the Korean War, so our uh, our trauma system and our our medical and surgical specialists were really out of practice of caring for critically ill and critically injured patients. And so the the good news is the forces had the had the uh, foresight to to position their specialists, our specialists in in um, large academic trauma centers and so for the most part um, the medical and surgical specialists of the forces were actually uh, fairly well trained and up-to-date in sort of modern critical care and surgical management of the injured patients. Then we went there and then I think and as you know in, in these sort of war situations there's really a high influx of of critically injured patients and so some of the stuff that we learned there would help inform practice in in Canada. So, it's really a synergistic uh, relationship. So, things like the um, the uh, use of tourniquets pre-hospital, the use of uh, you know different uh, transfusion strategies, uh, really came uh, from that military context. Um, so, I think it's quite a synergistic relationship as. As practitioners in the civilian world, go to the military and then back, I think we learn from uh, those experiences.
1: You've done some amazing work on a number of different fronts, both on a leadership perspective, but also on a research perspective as well. You published this really amazing paper in the Journal of Trauma almost 15 years ago now that talked about the uh, the causes of mortality from uh, a level one trauma center and it really highlighted the the fact that pelvic fractures were a big source of of uh, mortality from hemorrhage. Can you talk to us a little bit about the uh, genesis of this paper and what you found?
2: Sure, and I think the uh, the great thing about clinical epidemiology. I, I did my masters in clinical epidemiology is that we try to solve problems that we see in clinical practice, and the problem that we see is that um, patients with that are bleeding to death from pelvic fractures, there, there isn't necessarily the same initial, this is what the problem is and this is what needs to be done. Uh, so for example, obviously, if someone is in hemorrhagic shock, we put an ultrasound on their abdomen. And if there's a lot of fluid in the abdomen, we can prioritize the, the belly. But there are these cases where um, uh, it's a little complicated by... Um, Either the, it, you know, with a pelvic fracture, all you see is the pelvic fracture, and you don't necessarily confirm that they're bleeding in their abdomen. And so, there, what we realized was that people were, there was really a delay to hemorrhage control uh, in those with uh, massive bleeding from pelvic fractures. And we were really just trying to figure out how we can best expedite it. And some of the reasons were sometimes that, um, that sometimes you have pelvic fracture, so extra peritoneal bleeding that uh, leaks into the abdomen and that confounds you uh, because you prioritize the abdomen and you get to the operating room and then you realize, oh, uh, we, um, we, we prioritize the wrong place. We really need to go to angio. And so I think it really speaks to the need. And I think uh, Calgary was a leader of this, of sort of having a one-stop shopping area where you can go for a laparotomy, you go for a, a pelvic embolization. You can do all the aspects of hemorrhage control in one location. So you don't have to pick between two different locations, i.e. the operating room and angiography, and then sustain a delay in hemorrhage control if you pick wrong.
1: I think that's a really neat thing that, that's been highlighted and you're pretty prescient because I think a lot of people have then gone on to do some work on figuring out pelvic factors. You know, one of the things that we were so excited to talk to you about today um, is the work that you've been doing at Orange. Um, so you're the president and CEO at Orange. For the, for the few people that might not know what Orange is, can you tell us about the organization?
2: Sure. Orange is the, uh, is Ontario's uh, air ambulance and critical care transport provider. So uh, So that means in Ontario, all air ambulance transfers, so either helicopter or fixed-wing aircraft, are uh, either performed or organized by Orange, but then all critical care transfers, whether by air or by land. So we have our own land ambulances that are critical care level are done by Orange as well. Uh, And they're done by paramedics. And so we have a group of highly trained frontline paramedics and pilots that uh, really do the inter-facility transfers and the scene trauma calls uh, in Ontario. And it's, it's really been, uh, I was recruited to Orange as uh, the chief medical officer in 2015 out of the military. And it's been an amazing experience working uh, with a great group of professionals.
0: Can you give us a sense, Homer, uh, how big is is Orange? Uh, like how many aircraft, how many employees, how many pilots, those sort of metrics?
2: Yeah, sure. We um, So we have about... Uh, we have about 670 employees and of that maybe uh, almost 200 frontline paramedics. And we have about, um, about 160 pilots, both uh, helicopter and fixed wing pilots, you know, and people think about us as really as a helicopter company, they see the orange helicopter flying around. But one of the things is that, uh, you know, One of our core pieces of business is uh, our fixed-wing aircraft because uh, we provide service to many of these very small and rural and remote communities in Northern Ontario, particularly the remote Indigenous communities that are fly-in only. And so we're their only way of getting uh, medical care, access to emergency medicine, and trauma care. So, sorry, and then so we have eight... We have eight operational helicopters at any one time. And so we use 12 helicopters to staff uh, eight operational. We have a fleet of eight fixed wing aircraft to staff four operational aircraft 24 seven.
0: Wow. That's a, that's a phenomenally big and complex organization. Uh, That's, that's tremendous. You you know, you kind of highlighted it there in terms of the, the geography with which you guys touch and, and, and service those communities. And I can only imagine how challenging that is, particularly you know, with somewhat unpredictable factors like, like weather. I, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you pick, um, uh, what modality, I guess. Do you send a helicopter? Do you send a ground ambulance? Do you send a, a fixed wing? I, I recognize that the, the far, far geography is probably quite simple. Again, weather weather dependent, but is there a is there a certain distance for those uh, maybe listeners who don't deal with this every day that you would choose one modality over another, or, or what sort of factors go into that those complex decisions?
2: Yeah, for sure. The um, so Ontario actually has certain gui- published guidelines. So Ontario uh, has published an air ambulance uh, utilization standard, and, and so the. There's a standard for scene trauma calls, and that is about 30 to 45 minutes uh, drive time to a trauma center that we use. And the reason why it differs is different jurisdictions use a different time. So as we know, it's often uh, beneficial to patients to bypass smaller community hospitals uh, and go directly to the trauma center. So the idea is that um, if someone is injured, uh, thirty-minute drive time from a GTA hospital, the, uh, they will dispatch at this, uh, In conjunction with land EMS, will dispatch a helicopter if we're called if they meet field trauma triage guidelines. In different areas like the Ottawa Valley, the time is about forty-five minutes. Uh, mostly because the ho- the uh, hospital is a little further apart, and the ones in the Ottawa Valley are are relatively small. So different times are used for interfacility transfers. The distance in the standard is 240 kilometers uh, for an interfacility transfer, or if they need a critical level of care. So if if say they're uh, 120 kilometers away, but they're vented and they're uh, they're on pressers and speed is of the essence. Uh, we might use a helicopter uh, weather permitting and others other circumstances permitting as well
0: well that's really interesting so so about four hours is the is sort of the line in the sand hey
2: four hour um I guess that's if you drive really slow so maybe yeah, uh, 240, yeah. 240 kilometers so maybe uh, oh, a more, kilometers yeah so maybe gotcha. a little more than uh, just a little more than two hours exactly okay I got gotcha. you
0: Sorry, I thought, I thought that was minutes, and I was thinking, that's oh, right. a little far out. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's interesting.
2: That's yeah. quite far, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. You, you know, I can only imagine the complexities and the challenges that you would deal with running an organization and leading an organization like that. Where, where do you see pre-hospital, particularly air ambulance care, going, uh, say, in the next decade? Is there any, any things that need to be improved? Is there any big developments coming down the the pipeline?
2: Sure, I think there's two. I mean, one in terms of the actual care we provide, because I think um, we have some really advanced practitioners. And and as you know, there's a a, for trauma care, there's a push to do things to push care out uh, further and further in the pre hospital realm. So, you know, the use of the starting of blood products uh, in the field, the use of ultrasound in the field, I think, in different jurisdictions, they're experimenting with things like uh, ED thoracotomies in the field, ECMO in the field. So I think the idea is that uh, we are trying to push as the practitioners become more advanced, uh, more advanced care to our patients uh, earlier. So I think we'll see that more and more. Uh, the other thing I think in general about air ambulance, though, is you know in Canada, there's a lot of issues um, from a healthcare system capacity point of view, post pandemic. And one of the things that I think we see with air ambulance and transport is that um, we're like a little special operations force for the healthcare system. And so where, you know, when when there's areas that uh, have very little medical care and there's an emergency uh, we can deploy quickly and and supplement uh, care in remote areas. An example that we had during the pandemic was we organized the uh, COVID-19 remote vaccination program for the remote indigenous communities. And when there's a lack of capacity, right, you can use transport to create capacity. So if there's a regional surge, you can use transport to move patients to other places. So in wave three of the pandemic, I think we moved about a thousand patients to different hospitals uh, in the GTA and further to create capacity for the areas of Peel and Brampton, which were really uh, under fire from surges in, in pandemic cases that were overwhelming their ICUs. So I think, I think we'll see an increased interest in, in um, air ambulance and critical care transport as a means of creating capacity, both uh, remotely and and in surge circumstances in, in built-up areas.
1: Uh, certainly, the pandemic has forced us to think very differently about the way that the healthcare system is organized and really tried to think about where we have capacity in some places and not in others. And, you know, Dr. Chen, you were a- appointed the CEO, you know, the in charge of the COVID-19 vaccine distribution rollout, which I think you know, at first glance, if someone, you know, heard, oh, well, it's a trauma surgeon being put in charge of COVID-19 vaccine distribution, people would be surprised. But I mean, I think listeners now having listened to you speak and all the work that you've done, realize that it's a very, very obvious choice to have you doing that. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about how that occurred that you were put in, in charge and what that experience has been like?
2: Yeah, sure. You know, the, uh, and I appreciate the obvious, cho- when you said the obvious choice, but let me tell you, it didn't seem obvious to me at the time, and I was scared to death, but the, uh, I think it really came with the, the completion of um, the remote vaccination program. So when we finished the remote vaccination program, and I think people were a little nervous that that wasn't going to go well. And I think, relatively speaking, there was a sense that uh, that program went well, uh, and then they were in need of a of a new uh, chair for the vaccine task force and so they they asked me based on i think the uh, success of the the uh, vaccination program for remote indigenous communities the you know it's a it's a large organization that was responsible for vaccinating ontario so there were all the different public health units there were ministry of health officials solicitor general uh, officials and I think the uh, it really was setting some strategic direction with all stakeholders, understanding uh, what our mandate was, listening to uh, what all the public health officials are saying, and all the different public health units, and trying to chart a strategy. Because you know, when you have such a large organization, you can only make uh, fairly large swings in. Um, strategy, like let's focus on the hot spots where there's the highest risk of transmission or, or fairly large decisions like that. The goal is not to get into the weeds at each public health unit. And so I think uh, a lot of the lessons in leadership in the military were useful um, in, in that uh, in that exercise. You clearly held
1: a number of leadership roles in the military at Sunningbrook and now with uh, Orange and in the vaccine rollout, could you tell us what are some of your major leadership principles? If you had to distill down your principles for what makes a good leader and what good leaders should do, what would those principles be?
2: I think some of the principles are, um, it, it, you really have to think a bit about what your what the situation is. So, I mean, when people talk about principles, I think there's both leadership and management, and I think we sometimes confuse the two. So the leader, the leadership principle is the leader is the person with the vision of um, you know the strategy and what the whole enterprise might look like. The manager is the one who really gets into the details of how do we turn that vision into something concrete. And I think we tend to focus on the, you know, the leadership and the person with the strategy and the vision, but that managerial role is also of critical importance. Like, what are the actual steps and the techniques of turning that vision into a reality? And, and I don't, I think sometimes we don't focus on that as much. In medicine, in the military, they really think about that. And so, how do you make an operational plan? How do you communicate that plan to everyone? So, I think, both principles are equally important. So if you have a great leader with uh, no management, I think it's hard to get the job done. And I think if you have a manager that's just yelling at people, no one wants to do what that manager is saying because they don't inspire or or create a vision. So I think both are important. And uh, I think it's important to I guess, have a basis for how to proceed both as a really good operational manager and as an inspiring leader. And I think uh, there's a bit of a science to both.
0: You know, Homer, quite honestly, that might be the, the best description of the difference between leaders and managers and the interdependence upon both of those groups that I've ever heard. That was succinct. And, and then I'm so glad you said that. I wrote an editorial a couple of years ago in the CJS about those differences in particular. And part of that came from frustration in, I think a lot of our local environments and our local hospitals where, you know, that nuanced view and understanding how those two pieces are equally critical and work together uh, really at all levels at the, the top level and in the, in the trenches as well. um, Sometimes we don't find that in healthcare. So I'm curious what some of the strategies that you've, Employed and that you've developed over time, and all these different amazing leadership and managerial positions you've held across all these domains. Um, how do you how do you use those skills, and how do you frame um, your your goal when you end up in an environment where maybe one of those two sides is a bit lacking in the healthcare environment?
2: Sure, I mean that, that and I think that's the trick, really. And I think we're all practitioners of that, trying to do our best to figure out the best way. I think what I try to do as a leader is, you know, you have to have the strategic vision, but one of the things, and I think we see this in the pandemic is you need to make sure you look after your people. And so obviously, you know, in, in, uh, in the military on deployment and and in healthcare uh, in the middle of a pandemic, people are put in harm's way to do the job that they have to do. But I think it's very important that people think and know that their leaders have their back. And, and I think that is something that we we need to continually focus on um, in crises. Otherwise, I guess our frontline people lose faith in, in their leaders. I think in terms of managers, I think trauma surgeons and surgeons in general are you know, we have an advantage in that when you think about the conduct of an operation, there are a million different steps that that we as surgeons have to be able to see our way through. There's no sort of, you know, the 30,000 foot view. Someone has to actually do all the steps to make it happen. So we can actually plot a roadmap. And even if we don't see a roadmap, we see the beginnings of a route and we have to make it happen. And I think in a complex operation, uh, in a in a management operation, it's the same. There are certain principles that we follow as surgeons. There are certain principles that a good manager needs to follow in developing the plan. And it's not enough to have the 30,000 foot view because you'll never get to the end if you just say, oh, just take the tumor out or, oh, just stop the bleeding in that area. You have to actually know uh, techniques and principles of, of making that happen into reality. So I think in the military, will teach you a way of, of planning operationally. I think any good business school will teach you that as well of when you have a, a, a mission or a problem, how do you approach that in an organized way to come up with a plan with your stakeholders and how you communicate it to everyone. And I think uh, we need to be more deliberate about things like that.
1: Speaking of COVID, you must have been under immense pressure from so many different factions in terms of how to roll vaccines out, where to roll them out. And I'm curious, when you're dealing with input from many different stakeholders, all of them believe that they're correct. How do you balance those different stakeholders and opinions? and still make a decision that you think reflects the best interests of the people you're serving.
2: You know, and that, that's, that was a challenge uh, in all aspects. And I think some of the principles are um, people want to be heard and I think uh, they need to be heard, but then you have to present some of your principles of how you just, what your decision is being made on. So, um so for example one one way of distributing covid vaccines in a time of vaccine shortage might be we're going to distribute it equally um uh, to every community by population another way and and so a lot of people where uh, there was like a lower incidence of of covid in their communities might say that might be the way to do it another way to do it might be by an equity lens of where they need it the most so if there's a neighborhood where COVID is basically exploding. You might say, we're going to put the vaccine there more, knowing that the vaccine's not going to get you out of the outbreak quickly. Like it's really public health measures that stop the outbreak, but it might accelerate the downward trend and protect against future waves in that area. And so I think it's important to, communicate what your principle is and people can disagree with it, but in the end uh, you have to pick a principle by which you're making your decision. And unless the situation changes, um, sometimes you make your decision as we do in, in surgery and you have to stick to it.
0: Yeah, that's very well said. Now I want to switch gears here just a little bit Homer, if, if you have uh, a little bit more time with us and ask you about, um, a manuscript you wrote talking about essentially handover of patients from paramedics to the trauma service. I, I'm curious what led you to uh, pursue that particular avenue of, of research and thinking and I, I'm also uh, always thinking about that particular manuscript and that work in terms of how to how to improve that process because you know I assume like a lot of places but you know, I can certainly speak locally we continue to struggle with all elements of the things you talked about whether that's communication from the pre-hospital group to the hospital before arrival as well as communication once they once they get here we it's a it's a continuous work in progress and I think we struggle with it here in particular
2: yeah sure and I, I think uh, I, I won't take credit for it really was. Uh, uh, the brainchild of a lot of my colleagues uh Luis de luz being one of them uh, avery nathans another but you know because i work at orange I was able to help with uh with some of the details of this which is handover is a period of, of risk right so you have these highly trained professionals who've started care they have a sense of what the where the injuries are and they've started the resuscitation they have some data from the from the uh, crash mechanics or the pre-hospital injury mechanisms that might be very useful uh, to the team and really it's something that we learned in kindergarten right when someone is speaking and they have important stuff to communicate people do need to stop and, and listen for a bit now that's all also balanced by the acuity of the situation so sometimes it needs to be abbreviated uh, because the patient's in extremis. but most of the time you have a minute or so to listen to actually hear in a structured way uh, what the team has to tell you. And I think it's really about how do you communicate these things uh, quickly in a structured way and you have a way of abbreviating it if they're an extremist. And I think um, I think we, we need that in intra-hospital transfers and handovers as well. And there's obviously a lot of work being done on the, say, the handover from the uh, trauma team to the intensivist. This is a piece of work on handover from the uh, pre-hospital transport providers to the trauma team.
0: I'm I'm curious in, in Ontario, and particularly you know your work in the in the GTA at Sunnybrook. How do the paramedics in the pre-hospital setting communicate with with you guys as the trauma service? In other words, uh, someone is shot or stabbed, or there's some incident. Uh, X number of blocks away is there a mandatory time at which point they need to call in like as soon as they pick up the patient or sometimes they're too busy and don't call at all like how how does that front-end process work because I think again you know based on talking to a lot of our colleagues across the country um, some of us some of our systems don't do that very very well and we continue to struggle
2: no and and, uh, you know in Ontario it's it's really uh, very much a work in progress right now so uh, speaking about Orange and say you're in a helicopter uh, en route to Sunnybrook with a critically injured patient, We there's no one sort of radio net that all public safety uh, providers can speak on. Like in the military, you might have an operational radio net and, an, and more of a combat support radio net where everyone can call in on that radio frequency and communicate. So Air can communicate to ground and and so forth. Uh, um, We're trying to do that in Ontario with a public safety radio uh, network uh, where we can call on the same radio frequency to the land EMS providers uh, when we're landing on scene and to to other hospital providers uh, as well. Right now it's by cell phone or by indirect communication through our communication center. So it really, is still a work in progress right now in Ontario.
0: Yeah, it sounds similar to a lot of places. I I think you're right. There's a lot of room for improvement there. I I just wanted to swing back before maybe we move towards closing and, and touch again upon um, your comment about some of the more, maybe aggressive is the the wrong term, but higher end uh, potential for, Um, uh, care in in some of these injured and and even just critically ill patients in general further further out in more remote areas and 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 for sure not only in the civilian but in the military domain that's being pushed quite quite hard which one of those things or how many of those things do you see as real world possibilities that may in fact become standard of care and you know, for example, roadside edithoric or sorry, I guess not an Ed thoracotomy at that point. It's a roadside thoracotomy. Right, interesting right. Seems seems a little off to me. You know, when you look at that London data, for example, and you talk to those folks, but um, you know that might just be my bias. There's a lot of really interesting things, and and certainly I sit back and a lot of our mutual colleagues that work in the U.S. and look at some of the things that they report that they're doing. On large military, uh, longer-range aircraft in the in the in the air itself are are unbelievable. So, what what things do you think we'll end up actually um, using uh, more extensively in the civilian world?
2: So, I think it really depends on a couple of factors, which is um, you know the geography that you work in, uh, the provider in the uh, in the air ambulance, and, and really your the type of air ambulance. So. You know, the, the London, England uh, helicopter EMS experience is really they're in downtown London and they're doing ED thor- or as you say, roadside thoracotomies um, and presumably the transport time back to the city, back to the trauma center is quite, quite small. Like for us, we, you know, we, we did our uh, annual report and we were looking at the kilometers spent on a fixed wing mission. So the, you know, on average, our fixed wing aircraft will fly 1,700 kilometers for one mission. Um, Wow. And so that's, when you think about that, like, there's no, there's no, even if they could do an ED thoracotomy, um, there's a lot of time and stuff that has to happen from the time of that ED thoracotomy in the field where maybe you've decompressed the tamponade to going back for definitive care and you know, repair of the heart or whatever you have to do and clo- closing of the uh, thorax. And so 1,700 kilometers is quite a distance to overcome for that. Um, now that's the sort of their back and back to base. So maybe it's 600 kilometers for just that one uh, um, leg to the trauma hospital, but it's still a considerable distance with, with a transport by land from the airport to the uh, hospital as well. The provider obviously matters because um, you know it's one thing to be a FRCSC surgeon or a, or an eMERGE doc with years in the belt. Um, it might be different if it's a paramedic base to do ED thoracotomies. And you know when you look at the military experience, they're 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 flying Chinooks where you can basically have a large team in the back doing a resuscitation you know, in the civilian air ambulance system, we're flying much smaller aircraft. So it's hard to get a large team to do a massive resuscitation. I think usually the stuff, the resuscitation is started at sending or in the field, and then they're transported and packaged and brought with ongoing blood and fluids running, but hopefully with less surgical intervention happening when you're in flight. Um, So I think a lot of things in the military setting aren't directly trans um, translatable to the civilian section. I do think things like far forward blood, ultrasound technology, and telementoring and um, and maybe Reboa, now that they have these, uh, as you know, these um, smaller catheters, uh, you know there's there's a lot of different uh, possibilities. And who knows with robotics and haptics, of having a telemetry procedure done in the field uh, by someone remote, if there's enough bandwidth and satellite communication, I think there's a lot of options. And I think, uh, you know, Canada is a large country with a lot of uh, remote and austere, uh, a lot of remote communities where you'd have to practice in austere circumstances. I think uh, there'll be more and more interest in this, particularly you know, when we have the call to actions for truth and reconciliation of how to improve access to care for our remote Indigenous communities.
0: I think that's well said, and, and it's certainly a reason to be optimistic about that topic in particular. Um, you know, we know how busy you are, and we can't thank you enough. Um, a lot of us were really excited to, to be able to talk to you today, and uh, um, it's really been a thrill. I was thinking back, you know, I met you. In 1997, when I was a first-year medical student, and I can honestly say, um, over the years, every time that we interact, I learn something from you. Um, I think of you a little bit like like Yoda, not because you have big ears and <laughs> and are short, but because your 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 commentary and your advice is always so sage and thoughtful and and measured and and calm. And I I thank you over a long period of time for all of that. One of the things we try and close the the show with always, as you may know, is asking our guest, if you were to go back and, and give your own self, earlier self, maybe as a trainee or as an early uh, a faculty, some of that sage advice, what, what would you tell yourself?
2: I, I think I would tell myself, and, and I believe as I tell, I tell uh, new trainees this, is that there's no hurry. I think um, I remember when I was in uh, med school thinking that I wanted to be a surgeon, but because of financial reason, I joined the military and I had to do some time as a general practitioner. I thought, oh boy, that's going to delay me. I'm going to be behind. And, you know, at the time uh, I was a little nervous, a little stressed by that, you know, and I think, you know, in retrospect, I think that's absolutely silly. I think we learn something from every experience that we have, uh, in medicine and in life. And I think, um, there is no hurry and I think as long as you get the most out of it and put your best into it I think uh, uh, it all helps in in making the surgeon that you are and, and the person or the leader that you are you've
1: been listening to Cold Steel the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery if you like what you've heard please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback, so send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CamJSearch. Thanks again.